On today's episode, I had a humbling and inspiring conversation with Dan Chung. Dan founded Crossing Borders as a way to help restore the broken lives of North Korean refugees who've dealt with human trafficking and other atrocities. Dan shared the stories of hope from some of the women he's worked with over the past 20 years, but also what was the spark that lit the flame that ultimately led him and his co-founder to create Crossing Borders. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Dan, thanks for coming on today. You're welcome. Appreciate you having me. So I'd love just to start at the top, and I think most Americans would, if they were honest, would not be aware of the North Korean refugee crisis, just what it is, the scale of it. Do you mind just giving me a sense and giving my listeners a sense of of what it is and what the impact and, and magnitude of it is? Yeah, sure. So North Korea, everyone, I think everyone understands that it is a communist dictatorship. So the leadership is hell-bent on getting nuclear weapons at all costs. Crossing Borders works with the people who want to leave that country, and they have many, many reasons that they would want to leave, including the lack of food, lack of freedoms, lack of economic opportunities. So 99.9% of all the refugees who have escaped North Korea have had to go through China. Because what separates North Korea from South Korea is the most militarized border in the world. Very few people have escaped that way. And everyone who's escaped that way has gotten riddled with bullets. And it's a miracle that they made it out alive. So they have to go north into China. But China and North Korea are allies. They're friends. And so China has agreed to make it as uncomfortable as possible for these North Koreans when they escape into China. And that means they have zero, I mean, zero human rights. All of the uh, refugees that we help currently are women in China. We do work both in China and in South Korea with these refugees. And all of the people in China are women who have been sold. You know, China has a gender disparity. There are a lot more men than women because of the one-child policy. Families had to choose if they're going to have a boy or a girl, and many millions, tens of millions of people have chosen to have boys, and that has caused this gender disparity of, some people say, 20 to 30 million more men than women in China. So these women come in with no rights. They get sold to these men, and we help them in that place there. And if they want to leave China, many of these women get fed up with the situation and they want to leave, they have to make the perilous journey through China with no ID. They have no ID, so it's hard for them to even get on a bus, but they have to, you know, using fake IDs and uh, identities, make it through China into Southeast Asia. They have to cross two borders to get into Thailand, and finally, they will be acknowledged as human beings, receive refugee status, and they can choose wherever they want to go. Most of them decide to go to South Korea. So that, in a nutshell, is the North Korean refugee crisis. That's horrific and and I'm sure new to so many people. And when did you become aware of this, of the crisis? And, and like, what was that, that just inflection point where you chose to do something about it? Yeah, I grew up in America. I was born in South Korea. My parents immigrated when I was a baby. And... 
they never talked about North Korea. They never, ever mentioned it. And, you know, I kind of knew about it, but I didn't know a lot about the country. And so I went through college. I went to college in the late 90s when North Korea was at its worst. It was a famine about, no one knows, but people say up to two or three million people died during that famine, which is about 12% of the population, just from hunger alone. So in college, while this was happening, I was just blissfully unaware. I was finding myself, I was writing poetry, and I, you know, I was just trying to figure myself out. And I was allowed to do that because I had the freedom to do that. Right. And so after college, my good friend Mike Kim, who, who you know, took a trip in 2001 to China, Northeast China. He had some contacts there. He's a very adventurous person. So he went out there and he met some of these refugees. And first reaction that he had when he met them and that I had when I met them was what's a North Korean refugee? And we heard about the famine and all of the human trafficking issues. You know, we're like 23, 24 years old at that point, And we knew something told us that we had to do something. And we were just young enough and dumb enough to think that, hey, maybe we could do something. And so he purchased a one-way ticket to China on January 1st. 2003. That was the beginning of crossing borders. And we just celebrated our 20th anniversary this year. But that's how we got involved. We, we saw this terrible thing happening. Very few people from the US knew about it. And still to this day, they don't know about it. And we decided we had to do something. And that's how it started. That's so powerful. Just the, just the power in the words. We have to do something that's so relatable to people. But it's one thing to be inspired, to be appalled by what was going on, but what was the next step from there? It's one thing to to want to do something, but how did you go about standing up a nonprofit that would actually address that just major crisis? Yeah, so it was really helpful for Mike to be on the ground, to have actual boots on the ground. You know, when running a nonprofit, I would never suggest just sending money and hoping for the best, especially at the beginning. So Mike was on the ground and we were just looking for opportunities. And one of the opportunities was obviously to house these refugees who were coming out of North Korea. And we started there. And I think the most important thing, because I, I'm very culturally American and so is Mike. Uh, and so I, I think I speak for the both of us when I say you should never go into a country especially as an American, and say, this is how you should do this, right? Tell people on the ground who, who are already kind of doing this work and say, no, 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 that's the wrong way to do it. I know best. This is American culture, and I'm going to impose it on you. That's the worst thing to do, especially at the beginning. I think, Mike, I don't know how he had the sixth sense of going in there and just listening right? Going in there and taking the posture of being a learner and saying, I don't know what's going on. You are the expert. I want to learn from you. How can we work together? And asking questions rather than giving orders. I think that has been what 
has made us successful in China, in South Korea, and beyond. Yeah. So much wisdom there, just going in, just having empathy, listening to the problem. I mean, this applies to, to startups, new businesses, just even leaders in general. You come into a new team, I always think about just how the best leaders go and they do a, a listening tour. I had a, a mentor of mine years ago, then that's what she, exactly what she did. She knew exactly what to do in that case, maybe similar to this, maybe had an idea, but just going in and actually being that listener. But like, what was next? So, I mean, you're listening, you're not having the assumption of, you know, exactly to solve the problem, not taking that, that American centric view, but what was next for you guys? A lot of trial and error. So we, we started helping uh, these refugees mid 2003, 2004. I think at that point, we began to build an actual organization. You know, Mike had supporters back at home who, who was sending him money and, you know, things like that. But there's the work of helping people, which is really exciting and compelling and what gets me going every day. But then there's the practical side of things, right? Like, how are you going to keep the people on the ground accountable? How are we going to keep Mike accountable? How are we going to manage the money here and have enough accountability that people would trust us to give us their resources so generously? And so for the next, I would say, 10 years, we had to figure that out. And that took a long time to build enough trust in people and in our donors, with our donors and with our partners on the ground, that we would be a trustworthy partner for everyone involved. And so we had to go past that moment of, I don't know, of just dreaming and then move into actual tactical steps of building a board, of hiring a good accountant and having the controls in place where people would entrust us. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. And I do know from personal experience, I started a nonprofit out of undergrad because I, I wasn't feeling fulfilled in terms of the work I was doing in terms of having a direct impact. And I know the fundraising was, was a huge challenge because we'd come up with these organizations and they wanted to make a big splash. So they would consolidate all of their giving into one huge organization, very worthy organization. And it was really tough for us doing something that was new and different like you guys doing something new and different. And, and just, I know the challenges there. So how did you go about dealing with that in terms of raising money? Because I, I almost think it's harder to raise money than it is to actually sell a product. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a great question. How did we, I mean, so we had Mike supporters. We had a very generous group of friends that we caught at the right time. You know, we went to college at the University of Illinois. And so we graduated and people started to make salaries and make their choices on how they want to spend their money. And so we started with our friend group. And I don't think we ever asked anyone, hey, can you give us money? But we told them about the problem. We had an annual event every year to portray and, and to really convey the issue on the ground. And it started that way. And then it really helped that Mike, he left China and uh, in 2008 or nine, he started writing Escaping North Korea, his book, and he got there before. There's so many books about North Korea right now, and most of them are written by actual refugees, and they're very, very compelling. Mike wrote this book at a time when none of that or hardly any of that was happening. 
And he happened to publish his book right when there was a crisis where two American journalists were captured in North Korea, uh, Laura Ling and Un Ali. And Bill Clinton had to go in and get them out of North Korea. It was a very public thing in 2009. And because of that, there was a ton of interest in North Korea. Mike got on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and... It really took off from there. It was it was a set of very, very lucky breaks. So I'd love just to dig in in terms of just like the situation on the ground. So I think it would be just helpful to people to understand like what that's really like. And, and by the way, what courage both of you guys had in terms of starting this nonprofit and, and putting your own lives in danger in terms of the work that you were doing and are doing, frankly. So can you talk to me a little bit about the situation, maybe sharing an anecdote of, of what it was like in the early days or just some of those experiences and the challenges and, and how you were able to, to make an impact on people? You know, when I was sharing about refugees, ha- having safe houses for refugees at the ver- from the very beginning, one story popped into my mind where we would sit down with these refugees who would be pretty fresh out of North Korea and they knew we were Americans. And so, you know, North Koreans, they're taught that Americans are literally, I'm not exaggerating here, baby-eating monsters. That's how North Korea describes American people to their own people. And so these people are so desperate, being in China, having no human rights, dodging human traffickers, that they're desperate enough to get into a room with baby-eating monsters And they would cower at the other side of the room just because of the brainwashing. And so uh, from the very beginning, we said, hey, part of this is like an information problem. They don't have the correct information. And so thankfully, China's media is somewhat open and we would just sit them in front of a TV, which blew their mind. You know, they saw pictures of Times Square and, and Gangnam and Seoul. Because North Koreans were taught that the outside world was much worse off than North Korea, that North Korea was actually paradise on earth, right? And so to just degrade the layers and layers and layers of lies that they were taught from a very early age, and if you said otherwise, you'd die, basically. You'd be sent to a prison camp. So through coercion... These lies are propagated from generation to generation. And that is why these people, when they would first meet us, they would be cowering on the other side of the room, unable to even speak to us. That's one thing. Another thing that (laughs) happened to me when I first got there, my first trip out there to China was, I think, 2005. I was much bigger at that time. I was like 40 pounds heavier. And North Korean people were just amazed at my size because those who grew up in the famine, it's called stunting. Uh, It's a medical term where if children are deprived of nutrition, they will be much shorter. You see a picture of these North Korean refugees giving their testimony. They look like normal people, but when if you're standing next to them, they're like five feet tall at best. They were just so amazed. I'm six feet tall. They thought my head would hit the the banister or, or the because they they just thought I was a giant. And 
we were just joking around with one of the, the refugee women who was, was like 4'10 and 75 pounds at most. And she said, I think I could fit into your backpack. And I have a picture with this, this full-grown woman from shoulder down. She was in my backpack. I mean, that's how little they were. And that's another thing that I've, I've learned about North Korean people is that they're so warm. There's this warmth about them that I have seen over the years. And it's so compelling to me that even people from the most harshest of situations, the most dictatorial of countries, we have this sense of family that is very, very human and very, very relatable. Hey, I'd love just to dig in a bit more in terms of just understanding just the the services that you provide to, sounds like primarily women, you know, where they're delivered and, and just like some of the success stories you've had, because it's just remarkable and just some of the tragedies that that people have had to endure, but just how you've helped them try to alleviate some of that suffering. Yeah, great question. When we first started, it was an emergency situation. North Koreans needed resources and they needed them quick. And so that was really easy for us. We had homes for them. We had cash that we would hand out to them. But over time, the situation had changed. People, the bleeding of people from North Korea slowed down over the next decade and a half. And the needs began to change. The North Koreans who are still in China now, they have chosen to stay. Uh, They compare their lives now in China, even though they don't have ID, they don't have any freedom, they are sold to these men. They think that that situation is better than North Korea, and they're just going to write it out there. They've committed to do that. So at first, it was an emergency situation. We were helping with cash, medical, housing, food, all of that. And now it's more of a community focus, right? And so now we just try to get them together. We work with the underground church. And so a lot of them have started to attend this church that we started just for North Korean people. I mean, everyone is invited, but it's specifically and primarily for these women. And we have seen just powerful results from that. And for example, uh, there was this woman in our network that she was blind from glaucoma. A very simple procedure to, to rectify. But her husband who purchased her and his family, they pref- actually preferred that she was blind. And the reason being was that she would be less prone to leave, to running away if she was blind. If she needed them to be their eyes for her, then there was very little chance for her to flee. So this community figured out, oh, this woman has glaucoma from their very rudimentary medical understanding. And one of them heard of a missionary in the next town over who was doing free eye surgery for people. And I don't know how they figured this out, but They moved her from where she was at and they paid for everything themselves, moved her two towns over, got her that surgery, and her life is completely transformed. I met her in like 2015 or 2016, I I met her and she was very mute. If you can't see the expression on my face, you know, she'd pick up 
on like half of the things I was saying because of that, right? Communication is very visual for us, uh, for those with eyesight. And so she was kind of like checked out. And the next time we saw her, she was jumping up and down. She was like a completely different person. And her life totally changed as well after that. And what did I do for her? I didn't do anything. It was like, we started this community, sure, but it was the community, the power of that community that, that that transformed her life. It wasn't me, it was them. That is one of the stories that in the 20 years of our work that I'm most proud of, the light touch that we had, but the profound impact that that made on her. That's so beautiful and so um, just incredible, the the difference. But yeah, creating community, how do you go about growing and building that community because there are challenges because a lot of it sounds like it's uh needs to be done in, in secret and given this is happening in a place not where where there is no there are no rights so how do you still foster that sense of community and to grow it i think it's really easy you get two north korean women who have been starved of company of their own people for over a decade you get two of them in a room together and the energy is infectious. What we do is, yeah, sure, we put out feelers in certain communities where we suspect there are a larger concentration of North Korean women. But once that happens, once two people start gathering together in an official capacity, you know, both of those women know one other North Korean woman and so on and so forth and over the years in china we've helped over 500 women in this way we're just building community organically i love just to, to transition just a little bit because i think nonprofit work there obviously are some overlaps with for-profit but just i'm just curious in terms of your experience as a as a nonprofit leader just the differences that you've experienced and, and how that parallels some of the work you've done in the, in the for-profit sector I was in journalism before coming on full-time with Crossing Borders in 2012. I was at a radio station. Uh, it was CBS Radio in Chicago. Runs 24 hours a day. A very fast-paced news traffic and weather on the 8s. And it's very frenetically paced. There's obviously a lot of news coming out of Chicago, especially out of the South Side that's tragic. And we were, were just always running around like chickens with their, our heads cut off. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But the way that you have to talk to one another <laughs> in that space, it's for efficiency's sake, right? It's like, you know, my brother is a chef. He works in kitchens. And, and so I found that those two atmospheres were very similar because the sense of urgency was one of the biggest characteristics of both of those jobs. So I say that because in nonprofit, you know, especially being a faith-based nonprofit, I had to sort of, I don't know, deprogram that language <laughs> out of my mouth because it was so different. And I found when I did that, that I started to change as well. I started being less stressed. I started to not only to speak kindly, but I, I really started to feel like I was being more kind to the people around me. That's the biggest difference. And so in any sort of endeavor that I 
pursue now uh, outside of my work, I carry that along with me. And it has truly changed me. And I, I don't know how long I'll be doing this. Uh, I've been doing this now for 10 years. And I have no plans of stopping. But if I ever do stop and go into another sector, I think I, I'll carry that with me. The The power of kindness is what I've learned as a leader uh, in this space. Yeah, it's interesting just, just how, uh, how that's changed. But like, what else have you learned about yourself? Obviously, the power, the importance of kindness, uh, doing real value-adding work in the, in the world. But like, what else did you learn about yourself in the last 10 years? As a leader, I was thinking about this coming into this podcast, but one of the most transformative moments as a leader that I've had over the past 10 years was seeing Susan Cain speak. Susan Cain wrote Quiet, The Power of Introverts. Her book and her in-person talk was about that, about how the world is kind of built for extroverts. I straddled the line between introvert and extrovert, but I felt this, I don't know, pressure to be this this very extroverted person in my work, to treat my staff, when I'm in front of my staff, to act like more of an extrovert, act like more of a people person. And she gave many examples in her book about leaders who were introverts, like Abraham Lincoln, like Bill Gates, so many leaders who didn't do it that way. I realized that the modeling in my head and through, I don't know, media or I, I don't know how I got this thought in my head was totally wrong and that I could actually be myself. I, I don't have to be this gregarious people person. I mean, I should always be, we should always be kind, like I said in my other example, but I don't have to be this extroverted guy who's always willing to go out for drinks or whatever. And I could find strength and solace and time to think and dream on my own. And that's how I, I gain strength. And that's okay. I used to think that wasn't okay. And I would kind of beat myself up about it. But yeah, that book and her talk really gave me the strength and the paradigm shift that I needed. Yeah, it's interesting. I know there's different understandings of the word introversion, extroversion. Technically, it's about where you get energy. And for me, I, I've always thought of myself as, as pretty much an extrovert. But just a, a funny comment by one of my wife's employees recently, she said, gosh, your husband's an introvert. So I've kind of just tried to just really be introspective. And just what I realized is like, I guess I do get a lot of energy from just time reading, reflecting, thinking, writing, things like that. So, you know, your point is there's there's all different styles in terms of being effective as a leader. And I think it's a word you didn't say, but I think it's important is being authentic and being true to who you are and and not, not trying to be what you think you need to be as this gregarious, just person who's always that person leading a nonprofit, but actually leading it in your own way. Yeah, that that is one of the key leadership lessons that I've learned in my life. So I'd love just to ask you a question that I'm asking guests moving forward, but just the concept of greatness, which is a, a familiar word, but the way I look at greatness is it's the intersection of purpose and success, because I believe that many people find that the purpose is a little bit inaccessible. It's got to be this transcendent moment that creates purpose. Success tends to be 
your bank account balance, your salary, your title, the logo that's on your shirt or on your business card. I'd just be curious in your mind, in your words, like how do you define greatness for yourself? I'll give you two examples. I don't know which one's right. Uh, the Bible uh, says, if you want to be great, learn to be the servant of all, whether you believe in the Bible or not. I think that's a message that we could all take with us. Yeah, to a servant leader, I think the people that I respect and admire the most uh, in the world are servant leaders. And I try to emulate that, especially in South Korea. It is a very paternalistic society. Women are often literally put to the sideline. You know, just for example, and this is me just trying to be like this and not naturally being like this, but we have a safe house in South Korea. And when we, when I visited last year, I saw that there were dishes in the sink. And I said, okay, learn to be a servant. And so I started doing the dishes and it was all women, you know, the women that we were helping and the social workers. They were mortified. They would not let me do the dishes. It's such a male-driven society. You never do that as a male. And so, you know, you have to do it in the right context, in the right way. But I still hold to that. I think secondly, you know, just a more humanistic view or just my own personal view is that if you're not a good father or husband, which I'm both, I wear both of those hats, uh, then you're not really successful. Like, I know plenty of people who are successful in the business world and have miserable home lives. And that is not success. And so I am so blessed to have a wonderful marriage and a fantastic relationship with my children. And I see some of my friends who who might have millions and millions of dollars more than I do, but there's something in their home life that is not as happy. And I think to myself, what I have is worth those millions of dollars, if not more than that. So I, I really do believe that if you're not successful at home, you're not successful, period. Yeah, of course, obviously that resonates with me. And one of the values that I learned in, in living in the south of Brazil, because I was spending every waking moment basically with my my wife. She's just girlfriend, I guess, fiance at the time, and just learned the importance of freedom of time and space. And not just for the sake of freedom of time and space, but so that I can spend time with the people that matter most. So at that time, it was my fiance. Now it's my wife and my kids and and my other family members and, and very close friends. And to me, that's that's so important. It just allows me to, to lead such a, a rich life, just at least for me. Yeah, totally agree. So what's next? What's next for Crossing Borders? I know you've been in, been in this for 10 years. What do you, like, what's next for you? What's next for the organization? Yeah, that's a great question. We are trying to incorporate OKRs, key outcomes and results. A lot of what we've done is build depth with North Korean refugees and we haven't necessarily gone for big numbers as far as packing our places. And we could have, but we chose to go for depth. And that's really hard to measure. But yeah, this year, and we feel like in the, the years to come, 
that we need to get better at naming what our success is. It doesn't have to be hundreds or if not thousands of people filling our classes and our, our safe houses and things like that. But it could be. But we, we're we trying to define what success means in these next few years and then going after what that means instead of just kind of saying, no, these are people and each person is different and has different needs and this and that. We do want to get more focused in that way. And so for this year, we usually start our year with a, a staff retreat, and that really is going to be the focus of our staff retreat and our next board meeting to set up some sort of focused outcomes and results that will sort of give us a North Star. Well, Dan, I applaud you human to human. I appreciate the work that you're doing to address some of the, the horrors that are, that are out there in the world. But where can people go to find out more about you, about your organization? I know you're a podcast host. I appreciate the very uh, familiar mic. So where can people go to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, uh, you can go to Crossing Borders, our website, crossingbordersnk for NorthKorea.org. Or you could go to uh, find the Demystified Zone, wherever you find your podcasts, to learn more about North Korea. It's a more lighthearted and approachable way to find out about North Korea. It's very conversational. We poke fun of ourselves and of the great leader Kim Jong-un on that podcast. So yeah, find the Demystified Zone. Well, Dan, hey, uh, I'll let you get back to it, but great speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Darren. I appreciate it.